0: Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Dr. James Garbarino. And we spoke back on September 3rd, 2021, about a very fascinating book titled Listening to Killers, Lessons Learned from My 20 Years as a Psychological Expert Witness in Murder Cases. And you can go back and listen to that on William Ramsey Investigates. But today, Dr. Garbarino is going to talk about another of his books, which... Was written, I think, originally in 1999. Title of the book is Lost Boys Why Our Sons Turn Violent and How We Can Save Them. And it also has an audiobook available, so you can check that out. But uh, Dr. Garbarino has, is the author of 26 books. Some he's written independently, some with other uh, scholars and writers. But I'll, I'll, re, I'll tell a few titles before we get started. One is The Psychologically Battered Child from 1986. Also, Children and Families in the Social Environment, Modern Applications of Social Work, 1992. Also, No Place to Be a Child Growing Up in a War Zone, 1992. And Words Can Hurt Forever, How to Protect Adolescents from Bullying, Harassment, and Emotional Violence, published <laughs> 2003. Children and the Dark Side of Human experience, experience, Confronting Global Realities and Rethinking Child Development, 2008. And then positives: The Positive Psychology, Personal Transformation, Leveraging Resilience for Life Change, 2011. And I think it's his most recent book is Miller's Children, Why Giving Teenage Killers a Second Chance Matters for result. 2018. But again, we're going to talk about this book today, Lost Boys, Why Our Sons turn Violent and How We Can Save Them. So Dr. James Garbarino, are you there?
1: Yeah, it's good to be with you.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing uh, to come back to the interview. For people who may not have heard of our earlier interview, you've had a very lengthy career with a lot of uh, output. Can you kind of talk about that output and what led you towards uh, to writing this book Lost Boys?
1: Well, you know, I got my PhD in 1973 in human development from Cornell University. And my mentor, who was a kind of second father to me, was a developmental psychologist named Yuri Bronfenbrenner. And um Yuri really impressed upon us the importance of looking at human development in social context, in cultural context, historical context. And so from the very start, I was interested in issues that were not, in a sense, sort of arcane uh, topics in developmental psychology, but very much developmental psychology in real world settings. So for the first uh, you know, more than 20 years of my career, I focused on uh, child abuse and neglect, developmental issues there. I focused on uh, uh, development in um, uh, war zones, refugee camps. Uh, That's one reason why that one of those books you mentioned is called, uh, it talks about the dark side because a lot of my work was dealing with kids, teenagers, kids on the dark side of human experience. Um, But then as the early 1990s began, um, I started a collaboration with a woman named Claire Bedard. Who we eventually married, but you know, she was really upset by a case in England of some young boys who killed another kid and were, you know, being sentenced, sort of a draconian sentence. So it, it's partly because of that, and the fact that I had some expertise in adolescent development. I taught adolescent development. I, co-authored textbook on adolescent development, that I was drawn to this question of why do boys become violent? And uh, so we, at the time I was at Cornell University, and we had access to uh, several New York State youth detention centers for boys, violent boys. And so we began talking with them, trying to understand uh, their lives, understand how they understood their lives, and and try to figure out, you know, where they were headed and and so on. So um, these interviews always began with an effort to form a human connection with these boys. Um, and, and that turned out to be very important because I remember one boy said, you know, he said, I've been evaluated, I've been assessed, I've been investigated. Uh, but nobody ever wanted to really hear my story. And so we were coming at this not with a strict, rigid interview protocol or not with a set of uh, questionnaires, but to really hear their story and to try to make sense of it. And that's really where this developmental perspective came in because, you know, it's one thing to tell somebody's story, but it's another thing to put it in a developmental perspective, which is how you understand it. In a way that is coherent and is consistent with what developmental science teaches us about uh, how boys develop, particularly boys on the dark side.
0: Right. So, I mean, you entered the. You talk about the book written in 1999 about the epidemic of youth violence. It's probably gotten worse, at least from my kind of vantage point. How does this whole epidemic start, and how do how do the boys get lost in it?
1: Well, you know, the actual numbers wax and wane a bit over the years. The the early 1990s was a period of, uh, as you say, sort of epidemic growth of the problem of youth violence, uh, in part because of a variety of social and economic and cultural uh, conditions. Uh, And then, you know, there was some uh, retreat from that peak uh, it subsided a bit. It came back up. I mean, the average has always stayed high. You know, Whenever you look at the world leaders in youth homicide, youth violence, the United States is always up there very high. Usually the only countries that have more are countries that are in a state of total collapse or coming out of a war. And that's relevant because um, you know, the United States, uh, since World War II even, has uh there's hardly a year when we're not coming out of a war or going into a war. And, and one of the issues in all of this is the, the sort of, uh, I'd say cultural contamination, um, about war and violence in American culture. You know, whenever there's a government program to address an issue, chances are, it's going to be called the war on something, the war on drugs, the war on poverty, the war on terror. And I think that's not just a matter of semantics. There, is, there are some underlying issues about that. And indeed, as I talk about in Lost Boys, as, as there was a sense of increasing youth violence, there really was a concerted effort in effect to go to war against violent juveniles. Uh, many states passed these laws that provided for uh, mandatory life without parole sentences for juveniles, something that remained in effect until the until 2012 with the Supreme Court Miller versus Alabama decision, I mean, there with thousands of boys who were under the age 18 who were given mandatory life without parole sentences, which is really a death in prison sentence um, because of being involved in homicides as, uh, as teenagers. So, you know, the, the, if you get into the individual lives of kids who end up committing violence, You know, you can look at things like uh, the role of child abuse and other forms of adversity and trauma in destabilizing kids. But those things don't automatically lead to a kid becoming violent. There's, uh, you know, there's the question of the cultural context. Can't remember if we talked about it last time, but there was this stunning study that speaks to this cultural contamination about violence. It's a study of uh, people who have schizophrenia, schizophrenics, about 50% of whom hear voices. And you know nobody paid much attention to what the voices are saying because you know they're just voices in their head. But a team of anthropologists looked at these voices, they're called auditory hallucinations, uh, in people. These weren't young people, these were you know, various ages, adults, but in the United States in India and in Ghana, a country in Africa. And they found in the United States, uh, 80% of the time, these voices were telling people to commit acts of violence against themselves or others. In India, it was only 20%. In Ghana, it was only 10%. So even crazy people who we think are disconnected from reality are getting this message about violence in American life. So that's a big part. And I suppose the last thing that makes it so dramatic is that the lethality of youth violence the likelihood that will result in death certainly increases dramatically when guns are involved. Right. Imagine you know you uh, you can't have a drive-by stabbing, but you you know significant numbers of kids are shot in drive-by shootings. It, shooting can be can transform a violent conflict into a lethal conflict, obviously instantaneously and with very little effort. So that I think is part of the issue that the, comb- the combination of individual factors, cultural factors, and what you might call sort of technological factors, the uh, availability of weapons. I remember in Chicago, there was some data that over a 20 year period, the percent percent of weapons that were used that involved weapons capable of firing multiple rounds, semi-automatic weapons, went from almost nothing to a significant percentage over that period. And, of course, if you're using semi-automatic weapons as opposed to pistols, the likelihood of causing death increases uh, astronomically.
0: Right. So this kind of violence doesn't happen in a vacuum. It comes in a culture, but also a lot of these boys may not have the guidance or oversight. I mean, would you say that's a common denominator is a lack of oversight and um, kind of uh, alienation that is current or common within the lost boys and their violence?
1: I think so. Um, both are there. The, um, the oversight, the monitoring seems to be very much related to the absence of fathers in the lives of a disproportionate number of these lost boys. Uh, Javile, what's his name? Javile Jahani. Giovanni wrote a book called why young men, which is a look at why Young males are particularly at risk for violence if they don't have paternal supervision, and you hear this all the time. I, you know, in working with cases, I hear about kids who they were holding it together, they were okay until their father split or disappeared, and and without that protective, guiding, uh, structuring force, they drifted off into whatever socially toxic environment was around them. So you know, part of the dynamic, and I think I talk about this in Lost Boys, is when boys grow up without fathers, it's very likely they will develop a particular kind of intimate relationship with their mothers. Um, you know, mothers who don't have husbands who have sons tend to become very close to them. They treat them more like um, uh, intimate partners, rather like than, a boy
0: for like a boyfriend almost sometimes. Yeah.
1: yeah. And you you see that, which is very understandable and very appealing. The problem, you know, and you often hear this expression, the boy has to become the man of the household. Fine. But the problem is when they get to be teenagers, um, mothers don't have the authority over them that they would need to protect them from falling prey to the negative forces. So there's a kind of irony to that. The initial closeness may create a vulnerability later on. And that vulnerability you know, can be exploited if there's gangs around, uh, negative peers and so on. Where a boy, where there's a father in the home, it's more likely, you know, nothing's guaranteed, but it's more likely that relationship between the son and the mother is going to be offered uh, or compensated for by this alternative role. But most fathers don't have that kind of relationship with their sons. They're close. They. But their closeness tends to be more traditionally masculine activities because they do stuff together, and as a result, what they lack in intimacy, they may make up for in authority. You know, it's like the if you if you watch you know college football players or something and they, uh, you know, they wave at the stands and they say hi, mom, you know, and and that's reflecting the fact they're very close. I remember when I played. High school football. You know, my mother would stand on the sidelines, and I was a quarterback, and they would tackle me. She would yell, "Get off my boy! Leave him alone!" And you know, fathers don't say that. Fathers are more likely to say, "Son, you know, this is part of the game, and be a man." And there's maybe negative consequences to that. But I think that dynamic does play a role. And I remember interviewing a guy who was involved in a murder at 13, and he said, "Until he got to high school, which was..." right around the time he committed the murder, he had never met anyone who had a father in the home. Wow, yeah. that's uh, you know, Devastating. It's a socially devastating phenomenon.
0: Right, so it really is the cultural context. These kids, these lost boys, these violent boys are coming. And also, without the father, they they become more vulnerable to outside forces, right? It's not just kind of the culture with them being with their mom. It's also... The kind of protective element that maybe a father would be more stern about isn't there. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I think so. And like everything, it depends on the context you're in, what the outcome will be. If you're a middle-class kid living in a safe neighborhood and you don't have this paternal influence, you know, it's not likely to be a lethal consequence. But if you're a minority kid growing up poor in a gang-infested neighborhood, without a father. It's like, you know, go to jail, go directly to jail, do not pass, go. You know, kids in that situation join gangs. And then, you know, they often say to me that joining the gang gave them a sort of male uh, role models and male support and male affection that they didn't have in their life before that. So that's another you know, vulnerability that gang membership sometimes often is a sort of substitute for what's missing at home. And, you know, often in extreme cases, they have neither a functioning mother or father, and then the gang really becomes a family surrogate. But it's so clear that it can be a, a masculinity surrogate. And of course, you know, there's this term toxic masculinity, which is probably overused, but Joining a gang to be a man is, I think, a particular kind of toxic masculinity. And, you know, a significant number, um, you know, the data changes from time to time and place to place. But I think in many cities, uh, 40% of the youth homicides are gang-related. Wow. Uh,
0: it's a huge number. Thing. And those kids are starting young, too, like 12, 13. There's so many stories of these very mm-hmm. almost pre like they haven't even... Hit puberty yet are involved in these gangs very early age. Yeah.
1: yeah, that's true. I mean, there's, you know, the recruitment by the gangs, it's often they look out for, on the lookout for young kids who seem needy, who um, are impressed with the fact that the gang looks like it's a place of strength and affection and acceptance. And then, of course, there's the resources. You look around and say, who are the guys who have the girls? Who are the guys who have the cars? Who are the guys who have the money? You know, it's not uncommon a drug dealer will, you know, look at a nine year old kid and say, Here, kid, here's a hundred dollar bill. Go stand on the corner and tell me if you see the cops coming. And you know, then gradual progression, you end up, you know, dealing or protecting dealers. And you know, we know that all around the world the currency of drug dealing is violence. And that's one of the one of the ways in which the drug dealing business operates, whether it's uh, a militia in Lebanon or The Taliban in Afghanistan or the gangster disciples or the Latin kings in Chicago.
0: Right. So you just I mean, it's a common element globally for young kind of vulnerable kids without uh, maybe somebody to guide them to more fruitful endeavors. I mean, so how I mean, it can get pretty dark for some of these young kids, can't it?
1: Yeah, as you say, it's a global phenomenon and one of the things that got me started on this particular line of work was spending some time in the Middle East uh, and being struck by the fact that things that we I knew of in Chicago, I heard in Chicago, in terms of violence on the street, were very much happening involving Palestinian kids on the street and The one big difference was, you know, at some point they had a sort of political ideological structure that gave meaning to it all. Uh, And then, then many times uh, back in the States, you wouldn't have that structure of meaning. But even there, you know, many of the guys talk about the many of the organized street gangs. They have a a rule book, they have a code, they have this whole ideology that they espouse. Uh, Many of the guys say eventually realize it's bogus. And it's, it's not really the point, but, but there is this global phenomenon of young kids being drawn into uh, violent enterprises, whether it's uh, Mexican drug cartels, uh, you know, or um, uh, drug rings in, uh, in Thailand. Uh, there's a, there are a lot of common elements. And there, I mentioned before about seeking to replace missing families. There was a study done in El Salvador, which is a terrible problem with youth violence, and Florida. And they found basically the same process going on of kids seeking out gangs for, for the family they didn't have, this family, sur- family surrogate. So viewing it as a global phenomenon does make sense because it helps us see what's particularly why situation and what's uh, more more general.
0: And so in these environments where they're coming from kind of an unstable background, their perception of the world and kind of uh, their ideas of right and wrong and what's moral are not really what's commonly understood maybe from an adult is what's moral. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I've often referred to this as the war zone mentality. And uh, if you live with chronic threat and you need protection, Um, which is what happens in these kinds of environments, you develop this war zone mentality, which has two components. You know, if you imagine a sort of uh, graph, you know, there's a vertical line. And on that vertical line is the perception of threat. So at the very top, you have somebody who sees threats when they're not even there. You know, we call them paranoid. At the bottom of that, we have people who don't see threats when they really are there. I don't know that we have a real name for that, but we might call it sort of the polyandrous syndrome, that you never see the threat. And then the right to left, sort of horizontal axis, is a legitimization of aggression. And at one end, you have a pacifist who says there is no legitimization of aggression you know, no, under no circumstances. <clears throat> at the other hand, you have a psychopath who says aggression is justified whenever I need something or want something or feel something. Well, the point is that if you live with a lot of threat growing up, and many of these kids or guys will talk about what got them started in the gang was, they felt threatened, they were jumped. You know, people said, you're crossing our territory. And, and so they, they needed protection and they found they had to be very sensitive to recognizing threat. And then the gang says, well, if you join us, at least, you know, you don't have to worry about us. We'll be with you and protect you from them. And so you get this phenomenon where the sensitivity to threat increases because you do have to be on the alert. Because if you cross the street or a car pulls up and you're the wrong wearing the wrong colors, uh, you know, it could be a death sentence for you. Right. But you also learn that violence works. You know, that they, they often report after I joined the gang, I got safer, at least initially, because I wasn't being victimized by people in the street. People wouldn't You know, it's more like a war where you expect to be taken care of by your army, even if it means you have to fight the other army. And so you get this mentality, this war zone mentality where you're hypersensitive to threat and you have a lot of legitimization of aggression. So, you know, one of the first cases I worked on was a teenager who was driving his car in Colorado in the city of Denver. And, you know, he had been shot before. He'd been stabbed before. He'd been threatened and so on. Member of a gang he's driving down the street and sees a car coming the other way, which he recognizes as an intruder into his neighborhood. so he sees the driver of the car reach down. Now maybe you and I wouldn't think that was a lethal gesture, but he knew in his neighborhood that that meant he was go- the other guy was going for his gun. So he quickly pulls out his gun and fires into the other car. Uh, and, and that's a sort of example of this war zone mentality. you shoot. You feel you're justified in shooting first because it's self-defense in that strange sort of way. It's something that most of us, unless we've been in the military, probably never learned. But if you go into combat as a soldier, you, you learn this. And not surprisingly, call it the war zone mentality.
0: Right. So you have that. And then you're stuck in that kind of rut, that outlook of life is... You know, your perception of reality is got, is different than maybe the socially constructive uh, outlook. So that's kind of like where they're almost like the following steps aren't much of a surprise if they end up in jail, shot, or in a just a mess of uh, being in the criminal justice system, right?
1: Yeah, you know, they, they often get into this adversary relationship with the police. And the police often start thinking about it as if they're at war with the gangs. And so guys get harassed, and of course then they mouth off, and they you know, as it becomes a very charged, conflictual situation, it's one factor sometimes in these false convictions, that in effect the cops are saying, well, even if you didn't do this, you probably did something. So it doesn't bother me to you know falsely convict you of X because if you didn't do X, you probably did Y, and this code of silence, you know. Makes it very hard for the law enforcement to get at the truth, so it, it becomes a very toxic, nasty uh, situation. And you know, I've I've spoken with kids who, you know, I'll say to them, "All right, you were arrested at 17 or 16. What do you think would have happened if you got away with that crime and weren't arrested in that homicide?" And many of them will say, "Well, I probably either would have committed another homicide, or I would have been killed myself." So they sometimes, looking back on it, will say, "You know, prison saved my life," and the ones that really, twenty years later, have transformed themselves say, like "It saved my life, and it gave me a place in which I could uh, do something different eventually, even in a prison."
0: Right. So their their future once they're lost is not bright. And what do you think? Like your section section of the book is really about how can be redeemed, transformed, or prevented from going down this life. Like, what do you recommend um, to uh, vulnerable children, like vulnerable boys, actually?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, there is a classic study done in Chicago based on research by a psychologist named Robert Zager. It's mentioned in the book. You know, Zager's work is in identifying kids at risk for homicides. They did a project in Chicago where they identified, I think it was like 1,500 boys who were the highest risk for committing a homicide. And they gave them three programs. One was an anger management program, which is a way of helping you become more emotionally intelligent, managing your emotions, uh, avoiding getting uh, aroused into conflictual situations. So um, anger management was one component. The second component was a jobs program. Because you know that provides alternative experience, alternative source of income, alternative social connections. So the jobs program, um, and then uh, the third component was a mentoring program. So you involve you know a man, typically a man, in your in their lives, who is positive, pro-social, strong, um, and the combination of the three was sufficient to cut the homicide rate in half for that group, which is, you know, which is obviously not eliminating it, but it's you know, saving a lot of lives. So that gives a clue to the kinds of interventions that are necessary, that it, it needs to have an alternative relationship, that's the mentoring, it needs to have resource access, that's the jobs program, and it needs to have this sort of psychosocial intervention. That's the anger management program. And I think when you look at the research, for example, research reviewed by um, uh, you know various psychologists around the world, you find that the two key elements for changing a violent youth are that you simultaneously provide what is called cognitive restructuring, which is changing their ideas about aggression and violence. But at the same time, you have to do behavioral rehearsal, which is practicing alternative behaviors. So neither alone will do it. Uh, You can't just have these programs where you give them different ideas, but you don't let them practice it. And it's not just enough to put them somewhere where they behave nonviolently because you haven't changed the thinking process. Um, So I think that's, you know, that's another insight to think about what it takes to uh, to change. And most conventional counseling programs you know, don't have that. That's why you often see the guys talk about, well, yeah, they sent me to a counselor at ju- a juvenile detention, or sent me to a therapist, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I listened, and then I went back, you know, and um, it hadn't changed my trajectory at all. It's not easy to change the trajectory, but the point is, research search other shows it can be done.
0: Right. Um, I actually have, I've interviewed uh, a listener right now, Lee Veltman, about his experience in the troubled teen industry. He sees himself as a lost boy. And we've talked about the discussion and he mentioned this whole uh, breaking code silence, which is uh, activists and survivors for institutional abuse of kids that went through that system. So maybe they're not going to jail, these lost boys. They're going through these troubled teen industry type stuff. Um, do you mind taking just a couple questions, doctor? Sure. Ask, I'm sorry. So Lee says, I mean, what would you, what would you do if, if you're a survivor, if you're a lost boy going through maybe these difficult uh, behavior therapy changes? And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think Lee would say that he got traumatized by it. What would you suggest?
1: Well, I think, you know, I think he's right um, that, you know, I've heard a lot of blood-curdling stories about, variety of juvenile uh, programs, you know, including places where the staff uh, sort of creates what they call gladiator day, you know, where they, they, they choose kids to fight and sometimes the staff bets on who will win and so on the kids are forced to fight. Imagine you're trying to rehabilitate a violent youth and the message from the adults is, you know, here, fight. Um, so obviously those kinds of very abusive programs uh, are dangerous. But some of these other programs that are um, you know, very rigid and punitive um, can also be problematic in mm-hmm. development. So I think the, the answer to how do you recover is that you, you get into a different kind of setting. Um, you know, if you went, you know, I often say that, you know, you have to decide between being a monk or a barbarian. And if you can go to a place where you can be a monk, that can be very important in recovery, where you have meditation, and uh, you know maybe it's a Buddhist center or it's a Christian center or Islamic center, where you have structure but also meditative practice, and you have the experience of being cared for, um, and you have the someone who obviously cares for you is willing to process these experiences with you. Now, I often say to guys, if you imagine the, the accumulation of ad- adverse experiences. It's like each time you have one of these negative traumatic experiences, it's like you're being handed a rock and you put it in your backpack and you got to carry it around now. And the more you have, the more you're weighed down by this. How do you get better? Well, you've got to take the backpack off, of course, but then you've got to go through it rock by rock and process and deal with it. And that's one of the reasons why I think the code of silence can be such a problem because traumatic memories do not spontaneously decay. Uh, They may be held in check for a time They're always lurking there to burst forth when something uh, reignites them or or stimulates them. So you can't, you know. People say time heals all wounds, but it doesn't. Doesn't not. It's not empirically true that you can have these wounds uh, and they can be remain intact if you don't process them, you know, for decades and then come back to haunt you later on. That's the way I would start: is an alternative setting that's got a meditative practice that has got sustained caregiving relationships and allows you to have the cognitive restructuring and the behavioral rehearsal of non-aggressive pro-social behavior, and it uh, soothes the wounds of trauma.
0: And you do um, recommend and you have advice about where you can get resources at the end of the book. So if people want a list of things they can do if they're listening and they want that resource, get this book and check out the appendix. So... (laughs) And so that can give you steps to, to take if you're listening. Um, is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed that you would like to just kind of before we wrap up the discussion?
1: Well, you know, I think one of the things that comes through is that uh, spiritual development can be a, a crucial part of this process of rehabilitation and positive transformation. Now, it's not just that doesn't automatically mean a religious group because there is research that shows that religion can be helpful unless it provides punitive
0: messages.
1: (laughs) And so, you know, certainly within Christianity, there's, you know, always two voices. There's the voice, you know, the voice of love and the voice of retribution. And that's true in most religious faiths. So that's why I mentioned meditative process because that ought to be the key that any religious experience that you're going to rely upon to promote spiritual development, if you're a lost boy, it should have this meditative quality, not just the uh, uh, sermonizing, not just the lecturing, uh, not just the threats of hell and so on, but but that promise that there is a loving way to li- live and that I, as a person who's helping you, am willing to be part of that. So I think... That's why I come back to spiritual development, in part because you ask the question, what is powerful enough to stand up against some of the abuse and adversity that these kids have suffered? And, you know, there are one of the best answers for that is a meditative-based spirituality because it gives you a place to stand in the universe,
0: which is what you need, as opposed
1: to just drowning in the darkness.
0: Right. And would you say that almost the lack of that kind of spiritual structure is common among the lost boys before they get into trouble? Like a lot of them don't have that, right?
1: Yeah, they may have a a rigid, punitive religious tradition, but they don't have this spiritual sense of being an important being in the universe. You know, the reason I think psychologically why it's so powerful is if you don't have this spiritual core, then you don't see any limits. I want your jacket. I'll take your jacket. I'll kill you for it. But if you have a spiritual orientation, you recognize there's some larger force that you have to contend. The second thing is having a spiritual foundation gives you a place to stand in the universe. Without it, it's very easily to fall into a sort of emotional free fall. But, you know, if you have this, you can say my life may be crappy, but at least I know I live in a meaningful universe and there is hope for, uh, transformation and renewal uh, in my life. And without it, you're, you're vulnerable to the dark forces. I remember a study found in the Texas youth system, youth uh, detention system. I think it was something like 25% of the kids said that Satanism was their religion. And, of course, we don't want that. <laughs>
0: right. No, definitely. That's the wrong direction. But uh, the great thing about this book is you can listen to the audiobook, folks. It has 75-star ratings. Uh, where's the best place to get Lost Boys, Dr. Carburino?
1: Well, it's still available on Amazon.com. I checked this this morning. The Kindle is there, and there's still some copies available. So um, you can track it down there. If it
0: and if anybody would like to follow up with you or maybe ask you a question, is there contact information I can put in the show notes?
1: Sure. my You know, I'm I willing to get emails from almost anybody. My email is J-G-A-R-B-A-R at L-U-C dot E-D-U. Awesome. Good about responding.
0: Awesome. Great. And another excellent conversation. Thanks so much for your time. Again, the title of the book is Lost Boys, Why Our Sons Turn Violent and How We Can Save Them by Dr. James Garbarino. Thank you so much, doctor. I appreciate your time.
1: Thank you. I appreciate being All right. with you. All
0: right. Great. Thanks. Okay. So stay there.